This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. <clears throat> Excuse me. Author John Potish, documentary filmmaker, is here for the full two hours uh, to talk about the CIA's war against rock. And we'll take your calls in the second hour. Questions and comments as John and I get into the deaths of rock legends like Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, Tupac Shakur, and uh, the CIA uh, continuing, perhaps, to target rock musicians and activists. I am uh, coming to you live from the home studio in Thornhill, Ontario tonight, my little studio beneath the stairs, and we are streaming live on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet, tonight. So, John is here to tell us how U.S. intelligence agencies have used drugs to manipulate and ruin the lives of Leftist leaders and musicians, including Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Tupac Shakur. Uh, based on his research, John asserts that the U.S. government has had a long-standing practice of importing illegal drugs into the country for the purpose of both generating profit and as a nefarious means of controlling society. And to that end, he laments that widespread drug abuse and addiction has over the years been used by the powers that be to disrupt and diminish so- social movements Uh, which would threaten their control over the populace. John has been featured on C-SPAN's American History TV and has been interviewed on dozens of radio stations around the United States and abroad. His work has also been published in the Baltimore Chronicle, the City Paper, Covert Action Quarterly, Rock Creek Free Press, and Z Magazine. He has worked counseling uh, people with mental health issues and addictions for over 25 years. In May 2015, John released his book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. And he's a graduate, uh, he completed graduate studies at Columbia University. Now, this book 
the uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, has now been turned into a feature-length documentary film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, The CIA War on Musicians and Activists. And John Potish, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on again, Rich. And uh, congratulations uh, on the documentary film. First of all, Thanks a lot. Uh, when was it released and, and how can people see it? It was just released uh, January 29th, this past Tuesday. And people can see it. They can rent it on places like Vudu and Vimeo and uh, also iTunes. Um, and they can buy it from Best Buy, uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. And so there's other places you can rent it and buy it also, but those are just a few of them. And, you know, if you want to find out more about those places, you can go to uh, drugsasweapons.com. Uh, the movie uh, website is a little is drugsasweaponsmovie.com, but they're both linked to each other, so you can get to them both easily from each other. So, yeah, that's, that's where you can get it right now. Now, John, uh, if you could mute the computer. You're speaking to us on the phone, but we just need the video feed from the computer. So if you can mute your computer, because we're getting a bit I of... I knew how to do that. I thought I'd done that, but it looks like I hadn't, so... We tried again to do it, system preferences to do that. Even just turn down the volume on your computer. You should have a volume control I there. That, I turned that down all the way, but now I'm, i got to look for the microphone, and I just okay. can't know how to do it. I'm so sorry about that. I was um, I thought I'd done it in advance, and obviously I didn't. But Yeah, we're getting a heck of a reverb there. Uh, are you getting that reverb back in studio, Ian? And um, Okay, so... yeah. I have that turned off. I, I thought I had it turned off. Um, oh, internal apparently no. Apparently, it's sounding fine on the feed. Okay, it might be. Uh, it, yeah, it might be on my end. Okay, All right. Good. So let's <laughs> well, let's soldier for on your end, though. No, it's fine. Oh. As long as the folks on the radio can hear it, okay. uh, it's all good. All right. So um, let me ask you about the making of the film, because it's based on the book. Is there anything new in the film that's not in the book? Yeah, there is some new stuff. Um, well, I mean, it's just great to get some, uh, you know, some people talking, you know, about what's, what, you know, I present in the book, but some of the new stuff includes, um, I got footage of Wouter Basson, the head of uh, chemical and biological warfare for South Africa when it was under apartheid, admitting that he had been working with uh, Porton Down and Fort Detrick, the two chemical warfare laboratories for um, you know England and the United States. So that's new. Um, there's some other new stuff about um, related to just eyewitness uh, uh, accounts of what happened to Robert F. Kennedy and saying that uh, a journalist, for example, saying, I saw him no closer than two to three feet, you know, Sirhan Sirhan, and I saw the gu a guard take out his gun and shoot uh, right behind, to the right and behind of Robert you know, F. Kennedy when he was assassinated. And so just getting some of that kind of uh, direct coverage is, is new. Um, you know, th there is some other new stuff. I also got found footage of uh, one of the former president of the American Pathologist Association, Cyril Wecht, saying that 
he thinks that Kurt Cobain's uh, murder was a you know, staged suicide. He, he, you know, it was a murder that made it look like a suicide. And he said that for local Pittsburgh uh, news station, and he's he's been on every major you know, news program in the country. He's he's you know in uh, about in his early 80s now, but he's very well known in the United States. Cyril Wecht. So things like that are just some new stuff that you you know I found after wrote the book. Yeah. Well, well, since the book came out in 2015, of course, we've lost some other uh, <clears throat> great musicians, mm-hmm. uh, people uh, like uh, Chester Bennington from yeah. uh, Lincoln Park and Chris Cornell from um, Audio Slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, I, mean, I don't know if they're included in the film, but do you, would you group those in sort of in the under the suspicious category, even though they were supposedly suicides? Well, I would just because I, I heard some of the activist work they were doing. I heard a little bit more about their past, but I couldn't put them in the film because I just hadn't done enough research on them to be conclusive enough. And, you know, the book is over 400 pages long, and uh, so in the film can only be about, to be two hours length, it's got to be about 60 pages, you know, of dialogue. And uh, so I, I really couldn't go over that. So it's hard to put um, you know new new people like that in in the film when I have enough stuff on who I have in the film already. Of course. Well, perhaps there'll be a, a volume two. Uh, let's go back. I mean, you, the, the the film begins as does the book, talking about uh, really the opium uh, trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, take us back to. I guess we're talking what uh, mid eighteen hundreds, uh, right? Yeah. So I mean, talk- yeah, right. So it built up that opium trade built up uh, to the point where it was huge in the mid eighteen hundreds, but China could not deal with it anymore and did not want uh, all that opium illegal opium trading going on in its country because it saw its populace getting addicted, uh, mad, you know, nationwide, and so it, it tried to ban the opium trade. And so England fought two wars uh, on behalf of the opium traders, and China lost those wars. And so um, those, those kinds of wars, you know, drug wars and opium wars, uh, you could see later, um, you know, uh, well in, you know, to today, basically, over Vietnam and over Afghanistan, which Vietnam being the golden triangle for opium, which overlaps a section of China also. Um, and Afghanistan being the golden crescent for opium fields, for poppy fields that produce opium. And so, um, you know, those are America's two longest wars, and it's no coincidence that they uh, were in the two biggest, best regions for growing uh, poppies that produce opium and heroin. And so I show the evidence of, of why that, that is and uh, how basically they were fighting over these great resources for the opium that turn, you, know, you can turn into heroin, to uh, sedate and divide the masses. Now, that's actually a quote from former U.S. Attorney uh, Ramsey Clark, who when I asked him about what he thinks drugs are used for by our government, he says to sedate and divide the masses. So that's the basic theme of the book. But um, basically, I, I show the evidence of how several families, a number of basically inter, intermarried families, were involved in the opium trade with the British East India Company. And that goes from the 1700s onwards, but they rose up as uh, the Russells, the Pierponts, the you know the Lowe's, the uh, Cabots, and they were all intermarried. Um, the Russells were the biggest opium traders, but a number of these families were into opium trading and made huge you know huge uh, amounts of money with it. 
and then started the uh, Ivy League colleges with that money. So I show uh, New York Times bestselling author James Bradley in the film, and so that's also some new stuff because he says he covers the fact he, he had written the book uh, Flags of Our Fathers, which was made into a Clint Eastwood movie, and he, he, his next book after that was called The Imperial Cruise, and the Imperial Cruise documents how uh, basically our, most of the Ivy League colleges were founded by families who made their richest in opium money. And so a lot of the um, secret societies like Skull and Bones, and there's a secret society in each, um, each Ivy League college, like Harvard had the Porcelain Club. And so in the secret societies, they would bestow uh, each member uh, you know, and, and at the Skull and Bones, for example, is the equivalent of about $220,000 when they graduated. Um, so they started off incredibly you know, wealthy when they graduated, and then they, became, they rose up in society even more with all their connections to you know, basically have very high positions in our society. The Bushes graduated from uh, you know, Skull and Bones, Yale and Skull and Bones, a number of them. Uh, the Pierponts um, with John Pierpont Morgan, J.P. Morgan, and uh, the, a lot of number of the Rockefellers also. And so, yeah, I just traced how that that led. And HS, HSBC is actually the third largest bank in the world. And J.P. Morgan Chase, started by the Rockefellers, and J.P. Morgan uh, is the wealthy is the top bank in the world. So it just shows where you know what they rose up to and where that opium money led to for these people. And so, when the the establishment decided to start targeting. Uh, activists, uh, musicians, and so forth. How does how did they uh, how does that connect to let's say uh, opium or or, or 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 illicit drugs in general? Uh, connect the dots for us. Sure. So um, when it came to uh, the civil rights movement, for example. You know, there was, um, there was a number of ways that they were targeted. Well, one way was during the Vietnam War, um, when it started, you had whistleblowers like John Stockwell talk about how his fellow agents were flying out of Vietnam with loads of opium. And even um, Judy, Judy Woodruff of, um, you know, uh, was it Face, I think it was Face the Nation, uh, has said that in the uh, special documentary on the, the fact that they have CIA documents showing and stating that they were actually you know, flying the heroin from Vietnam straight into the United States. And I show that that, that uh, heroin was actually targeting and being distributed in black communities during the Civil Rights Movement and during the anti-Vietnam War Movement. And so that really had a, a, a terrible effect on those communities in many ways. I mean, it hurt activists, it hurt, you know, blacks, black communities in general, but also the black civil rights movement, because um, it doesn't, you know, heroin addiction doesn't just affect one person, it affects a family, then ends up affecting the whole community. And that's some of the ways that they used it against uh, communities. And the same thing happened later with uh, when they were involved in different wars down in uh, Latin American countries with the cocaine. And so that's some of how they used it. But um, when it came to LSD, um, I show how they used that against the supporters of the civil rights movement. A, a number of the white activists, like the Freedom Riders, that were coming from a number of different areas in the country, but in a huge way from the New York region. And um, you know, so they set up this huge base for popularizing LSD at the Millbrook Mansion, 
the mansion of uh, the, the family that owned Gough Oil and Mellon Bank, the William Bell, Mellon Hitchcock's mansion. And they set up uh, former professor Timothy Leary at that mansion and sent in a bunch of MKUltra scientists to, um, to basically try out different psychedelics on loads of people that were, that were drawn up there or lured up there. And so that was part of uh, Project MKUltra, which is really the umbrella project for using drugs as unconventional weapons. And that's in the CIA documents on MKUltra. And, um, the, you know, one of the top drugs they were using was LSD, but they used uh, two or three dozen different drugs they had tested on Edgewood Arsenal soldiers for this purpose. There was an incident in uh, in a, an idyllic little village in France, I believe, around 1951. I don't know if they aerosoled. No, they, did they put it in the bread supply? How did they deliver this LSD to the unsuspecting uh, citizens of this little town? Yeah, it was believed that they actually did aerosol the town, um, and people thought it was just uh, uh, mold in bread. But, um, you know, they basically dosed, uh, you know, much of the town with LSD, and, and the town, you know, kind of lost their minds tripping so much on LSD. Yeah, that was a... Um, horrible incident but they they really had planned on trying to air, to use aerosolized LSD on a number of leftist leaders ABC News said they had a hit list of leftist leaders around the world to um to dose with LSD and partly through aerosolizing it but um they tried to dose uh Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and uh Kwame Nkrumah of you know an African leader and um and others that way so they you know, they were really weaponizing it, uh, LSD at that time, sure. And they had, the military had decided what, that LSD would be a great way uh, to, I mean, imagine if you were to to, uh, to, to aerosol LSD and, and spray it over a battlefield uh, and disorient the... Uh, the enemy combatants, or I guess, what would they do? Just sort of lay down yeah. and start tripping out. Is that the well, idea? Well, that was one idea, but but uh, you know, and, and they you know they talked about that idea in the movie Jacob's Ladder. But the 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 best documented use of it was actually found, uh, and this is in in uh, U.S. Senate Church Committee's documents on what they found that was actually used for. And this Church Committee report came out in um, it was about the mid 1970s, and I showed in my film, but it was basically the use, uh, you know, they were, they were going to use it surreptitiously, excuse me, on, you know, people at all social levels uh, of the United States and other countries, um, inside our countries, and so that's what they really used it for. They used it to dose you know, all kinds of people who were, you know, basically protesting their pro-war uh, racist agenda, and so okay. I show in my book all kinds of examples of that. Well, when I think of LSD being introduced into the United States, um, initially, I mean, I don't even think of the CIA. I think of like the Merry Pranksters and their their uh, their Kool Aid acid tests. Sure. So, yeah. to what extent were the Merry Pranksters were they being were they being manipulated by the CIA, or yeah. did the CIA realize that the Merry Pranksters were were using it, so they had to figure out how they could use it too? Well, I'll start with the fact that Timothy Leary was one of, you know, one of many professors at about 50 different colleges around the country 
where they were given money through a CIA front company, the Human Ecology Fund, to test psychedelics on students. They'd pay them with the equivalent of $150 today to just try acid or try you know, psychedelic mushrooms. Now, psychedelic mushrooms I really don't go into in my book because I haven't really found the same kind of, uh, you know, as it says, an extreme of harmful effects as the acid. The acid seems to, you know, develop more problems in people. But when they started using the acid on, on students, it was really introducing it to a lot of people. But it was also, they found that it could, when people were tripping a lot, it was much easier to manipulate them, even when they were coming, came down from their tripping. It just caused enough uh, emotional instability that they were more easily manipulated. So um, Timothy Leary was doing that. They got kicked out of Harvard, him and his fellow professors like Richard Alpert and one or two other professors. And so the, the Mellon Hitchcock family then gave them tons of money to start these acid uh, bases, headquarters in different parts of the country and even Mexico. Um, and so, you know, that's when they, they gave, um, the Mellon Hitchcock family gave a huge mansion with a 3,000-acre estate just north of New York City for them to uh, lure, you know, a constant party up there for, for a number of years where MK, uh, MK Ultra scientists were just hanging out, trying out different, you know, psychedelics on every, all the people that were lured up there. Now, the same thing, I showed a parallel happened with what you said were the Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters in San Francisco, except it started in a different way. With uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, Kesey was a uh, graduate student in writing in uh, the Stanford, uh, in Stanford University. He was also an alternate on the Olympic wrestling team. And he was actually so straight that he he'd never really gotten stoned off weed. Um, so he barely even ever got drunk in his life um, because of his wrestling for, for many years. But um, he needed money. And so when he saw those experiments in Stanford, he, he accepted the money to do the experiment with the psychedelics. And then, so he, he went through the experiment, and then after that they offered him a job at the same hospital, Stanford-based hospital, where he did the experiment. And so he was doing janitorial work there, and he had already been writing uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest there and ended up um, publishing that. But um, they gave him, after he was, you know, almost finished his draft of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest while he was working there at the uh, hospital, um, they also gave him keys that allowed him, uh, you know, access to all the acid they were using there for their experiments. And so the, um, you know, they pretended like they just allowed him all, unlimited to steal unlimited amounts of acid, but that's what he did. And then he had constant parties at his house with that acid. And so uh, from there, they surrounded him with people, a bunch of people that had been in the military, Ken Babs. Uh, Stuart Brand and a number of people. I have them. One John, I've got to about them. Military. John, part of the interruption. John, I've got to jump in here. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. You to delve into uh, the CIA war on musicians and activists. John Potash, my guest. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Hey, 
Hey, welcome back. John Potash is here for the full two hours, and he has a brand new documentary out uh, that is based on his uh, 2015 book, uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And we're talking about the CIA's war uh, on musicians, their war on rock, uh, really. And um, we were we were talking about the introduction to of, of LSD. You have talked, you and I have talked about this before. But how important were the Beatles um, in introducing or helping to introduce uh, drugs into the culture? Yeah, I want to get into that, and that's it's a good lead-in. But I just want to finish about that situation with the Merry Pranksters. What oh happened yes, with, thank you. Yeah, no problem. McKeezy, so Keezy. We're throwing these regular acid parties there. Mary Pranksters formed around Kesey and those acid uh, parties around Stanford, and uh, that, that those were happening right around the time of the uh, free speech movement at Berkeley. And I show that's no coincidence. They were trying to undermine activism in all the hotbeds of activism around the country, both New York City and the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, particularly Berkeley and the free speech movement, which was huge. And so those, a lot of those guys were civil rights activists also, as well as they started becoming anti-war activists you know, a year or two later. But this was all around about 1965 when the Vietnam War was getting much bigger. And so a bunch of people that were in the military surrounded Kesey. Um, I have Stuart Brand talking about his role as second lieutenant in the military. Um, he said how the, the, what, who, the second in command to Kesey with the Merry Pranksters, a guy named Ken Babs, had, had been in Vietnam also. And how they, when Kesey, uh, so Kesey basically uh, started a, uh, a bus ride from San Francisco to New York for the World's Fair. And it was like a psychedelic bus ride that uh, was you know, promoting LSD all over the country. Now, he was kind of talked into that, this idea, but he was you know, part of it and kind of led it. Um, and so they actually, their route ended up being all through the uh, Civil Rights South areas. And so they were actually introducing acid, or trying to, to a number of black areas of, uh, you know, the South. And, um, and then they end up in New York, and they go through Harlem with their psychedelic bus. And so right after the Harlem riots, the Harlem race riots, or race rebellions, you know, activists call them. So then they come back to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and they start the acid test. And the acid tests were, had the band The Grateful Dead play for them. And they became, each one became larger. The second one became larger, you know, larger than the first, and then the third larger than that. But sometime around the second or third acid test, Kesey said, "I'm done with this. I don't want to promote acid anymore. I want to have a party where we say it's time for people to graduate from acid." But uh, right after he he announced that um, and said, "Let's do that. Let's not tell people to graduate from acid," the police come and arrest him. And I show that there was no you know, coincidence because uh, once he was arrested and they kept him from you know, leading the group, Ken Babs you know, ignores what he said he wanted to do and throws a much bigger acid test and then throws what they call the Trips Festival with Stuart Brand, both you know, fresh out of the military. And that's a, a giant acid test that, uh, where you know, tons of people, all these acid tests, people would come and not, all, you know, automatically know that these vats of Kool-Aid were, had tons of LSD in them and were dosed involuntarily. Some people knew, but a lot of people didn't. But what was found out was the fact that um, a guy named John Gittinger was the top M- uh, psychologist for MKUltra, CIA's MKUltra program, uh, came with two other CIA scientists to a number of those acid tests 
and described how two more MKUltra operatives were also with them at the TRIPS Festival. And so it was loaded with some of these MKUltra agents undercover, and I argue that it's because they were, they were directing these uh, you know, operations and show the evidence of that. But so when the Beatles rose up, um, in 1965, the uh, uh, deputy director of MKUltra, Robert Lashbrook, um, came over to London, and uh, Robert and uh, A.E. Hotchner, Ernest Hemingway's longtime editor, said in his excellent book about the uh, Rolling Stones, a book called Blown Away, he said that uh, Lashbrook came over to London in 65 with loads of agents, loads of money, and loads of LSD. And he directed his agents to get the LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so I argue that the reason for that was to get these musicians to inadvertently promote acid and, uh, and really divert the anti-war movement and the, uh, and, you know, the civil rights movement. You know, all these uh, young, young people that were getting involved in this activism, once they got to tripping and doing lots of drugs, they were just diverted from their best work. And often some dropped out, some continued it, but it was hard to keep uh, do it as well when you were kind of un, you know emotionally kind of uh, destabilized by all the drug use. And couldn't so, you, uh, John? Though couldn't you argue? Couldn't you one argue that LSD actually did more to sort of awaken people to what was going on? Uh, you know, a lot of bands became political. You could argue as a result of maybe doing their first LSD hit. Before that, they were singing Love Me Do, and then all of a sudden, along comes this whole psychedelic movement, and then they start talking about, you know, no more war. So didn't couldn't it have had the opposite effect? Well, that's what they want us to think, and that's what I thought for many years. Um, the, but when I went to the quotes of people like John Lennon and... Uh, you know, even the, the you know, Brian Jones, the Rolling Stones, and Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. A lot of these guys were actually. They said we were political before any of the drugs, and uh, we were against the war from day one. And uh, you know, and what what happened was that they, uh, you know, they knew that, and they studied these musicians. who's you know, at the top, and so what they what they found from their own studies on acid, you know, testing on people for years. You know, they tested it throughout the 1950s and early 1960s before they operationally used it against these musicians. And the reason is because they found that, that deep, it actually hurt their best abilities to uh, be, become activists. And it was more the, the, the movements that politicized the musicians. It wasn't the acid that politicized them. It's just they, the acid came on strong from the, the U.S. intelligence and British intelligence um, and it just it happened at the same time, and it really was not the uh, acid that <laughs> politicized them at all. I'm sorry to say, that's the, I just showed the evidence that that's the real way it really worked. And so John Lennon says this in his quotes, we were, we were against the war from day one in 1964. First time we started hearing more about the war, we were against the war. And um, but once they, uh, you know, once they were dosed, and that's what happened, John Lennon, George Harrison's, uh, we're at, at a party with George Harrison's dentist. It was basically a dinner party. It was just the four of them and their, their partners, you know, John Lennon's wife and George Harrison's girlfriend with uh, the dentist and his girlfriend. And they drank some coffee that was dosed with acid without realizing it. Lennon was furious. George Harrison said, what's LSD? I've never heard of it. What, what is that? And they were tripping. And so, you know, what... 
after that, so why did this dentist do this? Why did he risk so much to do this? The only way he would risk some of that if he knew he was uh, basically had immunity from the law because he was part of the law because he's part of Lashbrook's group that was trying to get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so um, the same thing happened with Mick Jagger, where he held out from using acid until 1967. And meanwhile, he had already written some you know, great songs against the war, just a shot away, and uh, you know, different other songs that were against the war. He said we were against the war. He said, you know, me and Mick Jones, me and Brian Jones went to some you know, anti-Vietnam War rallies. And, uh, and then so in 1967, he's, he's holding out, not trying acid, even though the rest of the band had. And here comes uh, Dave Schneiderman, undercover MI5 and FBI agent, according to the Daily Mail. And the Daily Mail said that that's who gave you know, Mick Jagger and convinced him to try acid for the first time in 1967 at a party. And hours later, the police come in and bust it up, and they arrest everyone, but they don't arrest Schneiderman. He's got a briefcase full of drugs. And they uh, now have them under legal authority's thumb. They have Jagger and uh, you know, other members of the Stones under their thumb legally. Now, I argue the same thing was happening with Jones, but Jones was then set up in a different way and then murdered, and I talk about that in detail in my book, but sadly, right. my uh, film, I, I had, had to be cut out. Um, but in the, um, you know, I, I show that the same thing was going on in the United States in different ways, but in the United States, they set up the whole Laurel Canyon scene was a big setup to get as many British musicians who were a little bit less controlled than the American musicians um, and to get them to use acid again, because the, the next time, you know, John Lennon, George Harrison, and uh, actually Ringo used acid, you know, it was uh, at a party with uh, Dave Crosby and Peter Fonda and people, and uh, it was near the Laurel Canyon scene where a lot of evidence, uh, there's a lot of evidence that that was a manufactured scene. It was manufactured by U.S. intelligence, the same way they manufactured the Ken Kesey you know, acid test scene and the whole Haight-Ashbury scene where I, I quote uh, undercover agent saying that we had loads of agents all over the Haight-Ashbury area with, you know... Well, let me, well, let me ask you about Haight-Ashbury. Let me ask you about Haight-Ashbury. We're heading into a break here very shortly, but I'll, sure. I'll, I'll ask the question and we'll get to it after. And that has to do with when we talk about Haight-Ashbury, we have to talk about the Grateful Dead. Sure. And um, the, 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 uh, the guy that really created sort of their sound, the wall of sound. It was a brilliant recording engineer, but also was the money behind the band, Owsley Stanley III, who I believe was the grandson of a Kentucky governor. And he right. was at one time producing more, I think, more acid than anybody, um, any private citizen in the United States. Was Owsley Stanley working for the CIA? Yeah, I mean, the best evidence is, I mean, when you look, that it, this is the pattern of these top acid traffickers uh, with Mellon Hitchcock, who I mentioned earlier, who gave their mansion to uh, Timothy Leary. They also gave all the money to, to set up, you know, as, uh, headquarters for acid, you know, promoting all over the country. And uh, John, sorry, I got I to gotta jump in here again. We'll, sure, uh, we'll pick we'll up on this point after the uh, on the other side. We'll, we'll discuss Owsley Stanley. John Potish, drugs as weapons against us as we discuss the CIA's war on rock right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Pottish stays with us. A brand new documentary uh, now available Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And we're talking about the CIA's war on musicians and activists. And, John, once again, how do people uh, see this uh, terrific documentary? Yeah, thanks. So you can see a, a trailer and where you can rent it and or buy it at drugsasweapons.com. And uh, that's got a link for more details on the movie, at, you know, which is also at drugsasweaponsmovie.com. Uh, so I was, I was uh, thanks, Rich. I was, I was talking about, uh, you had asked about, uh, Al's, you know, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, commonly known as Owsley. And I was comparing it to the Mellon Hitchcock family that had launched Timothy Leary and set up these bases for sort of this psychedelic foundation all over the country. And um, so the Mellon Hitchcocks, as I said before, they own Mellon Bank, they own Goff Oil, but they also had a number of members in the highest levels of U.S. intelligence at one time. And so they were intimately connected with U.S. intelligence, and they were surely promoting, uh, you know, the project, CIA's project MKUltra, which had 199 sub-projects. And so with Stanley, as you said, is, is, uh, he came from Kentucky, where his family had been governor, had been a senator, a whole county was named uh, Owsley County after his family. And so here he is. He's partnered up with his girlfriend, is Mary Cargill. Now, the Cargill uh, uh, chemical company is the largest privately owned company in the country. So um, it's, you know, the ultra-rich are basically behind this acid, and they also have intelligence connections. And so, yes, uh, you know, Owsley is the biggest supplier of acid, but I also interviewed... Hank Harrison for about two hours, and he was the original manager of the Grateful Dead, and uh, so he was their first manager. And he said he he fought with um, with Alzi over the direction of the Dead because Alzi, he said, was incredibly right wing politically, whereas Harrison said he was much more left wing and aligned with great you know leftist organizers like Saul Alinsky, people like that, and so he lost to Alzi, and uh, Alzi and his right wing politics and his incredible amounts of money um, and incredible amounts of drugs won out, of course, um, because Harrison said he was also into tempering the amount of drug use. But so that's, that was what was behind the Grateful Dead, sadly enough. Um, now, it's interesting, before I was talking about uh, the situation with Lenin and Lenin being manipulated by, by tons of people around him to try acid again, even though he had a bad experience when he was dosed the first time. And so after he, he tried it again, he thought, okay, maybe it's not that bad, and he used it a lot more, obviously. But George Harrison uh, stopped completely in 1967, so he's, he's never using it again. But Lenin, but they, people around them convinced Lenin and Harrison and the rest of the Beatles to you know, launch kind of promotion for Acid Bow with a magical mystery tour, which shows them on a bus in their, you know, um, on the album cover. And that bus, and people kind of knew, was supposed to represent the bus of the Merry Pranksters touring, going across the country. And, of course, the Who had their Magic Bus song, and, and they ended up all promoting that kind of, you know, acid celebration, sadly enough. And the reason was, I argue, was to promote it to the movement in general, because the Students for Democratic Society, 
was the largest anti-war movement in the country's ever seen. It was growing each year to the point that by 1969 it was 100,000 strong. They were also very involved in the civil rights movement, and um, you know, first they were involved as freedom riders. Went down south, you know, to help the Martin Luther King and his his work, and Student Nonviolent Coordinating, Coordinating Committee. They were a big part of uh, this committee on. I'm sorry, uh, racial equality was a big anti-war group that that overlapped the members of Students for Democratic Society. But spreading acid and promoting it like crazy was partially to promote it to these idealistic youth and uh, to divert them from their best work. You could argue, let's go back to the Grateful Dead for a moment. Without LSD, there probably wouldn't have been a Grateful Dead. I mean, they started off playing in a pizza parlor. They were the I think they were called the Warlocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the inf- that infusion, without LSD, there's no psychedelic movement. Um, I mean, as I'm a fan of that that particular genre of music. I mean, uh, yeah, perhaps I the, the origins I, are. I, rather I liked different. it. I liked it a lot too. And I I only started disliking it when I um, you know researched so much for uh, for all this. And uh, just because that you know yes the, the psychedelic sound was was fine and good, but you also had U.S. intelligence, um, you know, they actually, you know, Rolling Stone said that they were known for their incredible sound, and their sound, U.S. intelligence is decades, in, you know, in front of the rest of society. I mean, they have technology that, that they don't release the rest of society, society for 20 or 30 years, and uh, that's the way it works. I mean, I, you know, I do counseling in the Baltimore, Washington area, and by having done that for decades, I've talked to people that are in U.S. intelligence that have, you know, conveyed this stuff to me about the way they keep uh, technology from the rest of society for decades. And so, they, yes, you know, intelligence gave them this incredible sound. Not that, I, you know, it couldn't have been good anyway, but it, made, it really made them stand out more than other bands. And uh, I just argue that, um, you know, a lot of that, that's part of how they got so big. I mean, they... they the first acid test that they played at, there was very few people there. It was really the only people there were the pranksters. And then, you know, with a huge promotion, it got bigger and bigger each acid test. But that was their start. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, that's the way it happens with a lot of these bands is with the ones that will promote the drugs get the huge promotion. And a lot of that huge promotion is, uh, they call it, you know, in the PR industry, they call it astroturf campaigns, meaning, meaning fake grassroots. So what looks like grassroots promotion is actually coming from big money and made to look uh, under, you know, underground or grassroots. And so yeah, they rise up quickly, and you know, there you go. Well, LSD was, was legal uh, in California, certainly, I think, until 1966. Right. If the plan was to get you know, an entire generation and the whole anti-war movement uh, on LSD... Why wouldn't they have maneuvered the the um, the elections and so forth uh, in order to prevent LSD from becoming illegal? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's keep yeah. it legal, uh, well, and make it more accessible. Well, I, I argue that it's the nature of most drugs is is when they become illegal, they, they seem more mystifying. And uh, now there's a battle. There was a battle amongst psychiatrists. Psychiatrists were using it on patients for years. But there was also studies saying that it was hurting people's minds, and uh, you know it was causing some psychosis. It was causing you know extreme anxiety, 
Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll pick up on that on the other side, John. We'll have to sure. uh, no step problem. away for a moment. Come back. John Potish. Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Check out his new documentary. We'll uh, tell you how you can see it when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. Again, John, tell us how we can see it. Yeah, you can uh, see that you can uh, find all the places it's for sale um, and for rent, um, places like it's for rent, places like voodoo.com, uh, Vimeo, iTunes, um, uh, places Microsoft Xbox, places like that. It's for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, uh, Walmart and Target even sell it. Um, but uh, and you can find it, you know, find these places on drugsisweapons.com. So I was getting into the, uh, you know, we were talking about the legalization and criminalization of, of LSD, and I'll just say that, um, you know, in the early early to mid 70s, uh, top trafficker for LSD in the world, a guy named Ronald Stark, was uh, kind of arrested by Italian police, and uh, top investigator of his his huge network of, of acid trafficking, Dick Lee found that in Britain alone in just three years he had manufactured and sold over 100 million hits of LSD, his network, uh, Ron Stark. And so the first Italian judge that presided over his case was murdered. The second judge that presided over his case let him go, saying that he had offered uh, enough proofs that he had been working for the Secret Services and U.S. Intelligence since 1960. And he couldn't hold him any longer. Um, and an Italian parliamentary commission said that, yes, Ron Stark was working for U.S. intelligence, you know, uh, his entire career, it appeared, and had acid laboratories and acid networks, you know, trafficking acid in at least three different continents. And so um, that they were getting it all over the place. So le- legal or not legal didn't matter. Um, but it being illegal it did seem to make it more alluring, but at the same time, it might have been criminalized by some scientists who just said, you know, this is, this is causing problems in people. Now, was the LSD, pure LSD itself, causing problems in people? I'm not 100% positive, but the uh, government study shows it was. At least a quarter of people, soldiers it was tested on, 19 years later, said they were still having negative effects from the LSD they took 19 years before. But um, they do know that it, it was at strychnine, rat poison was added to it and cut, you know, it was cut with strychnine for, for long periods of time, for decades. And still to today, it's considered a, a major thing that LSD is cut with, according to the top sources on, on acid. And uh, so when you take acid, there's a good chance you're, you're also taking rat poison. And so that's doing something harmful to our brains. And so I, I just tried a half dozen hits myself in college. And... I was uh, very into activism in the beginning of college, but I thought I'd really damage my mind with those half dozen hits, and um, so I, I just laid off, and uh, it took a while, it took about a year, year and a half at least, to get my grades back up, but 
I didn't think much of it. I still was so uh, believing that acid was part of the uh, 60s idealism, and um, I had a hard time accepting that it, it wasn't something somehow positive. And uh, I was into the Grateful Dead and a lot of other bands. Um, it took me a number of years of doing counseling with other people to hear all these other people's reports of the way it hurt them, including some, some clients who woke up each morning with such high anxiety they threw up. And they were people that were big on the Grateful Dead and followed the Grateful Dead and done loads of acid. So, yeah, it's just what I found when we found the studies and everything else that support this. Um, so how how does this work? If a musician starts to get political and he's signed to a major label and he decides he wants his album or the band's album to feature a number of anti-war uh, songs, for example, if we're talking about the Vietnam era, mm -hmm. uh, and the R and R person at, or the producer says, "No, I don't, I don't like that song," or what have you, uh, it still gets out there. I mean, there were there were protest songs that were very popular uh, yeah. in in uh, the in the nineteen sixties. I think of um, uh, Sky Pilots, uh, right? Eric Bird and the Animals, and I right. think of and and that's no, great. So, yeah, oh yeah, there were there was great. Some, some great anti-war songs, but the way it tended to work is it was the movement that, that you know, the movement, the growing anti-war movement, which was so, got so huge, as I said, 100,000 strong by 1969, just one group, Students for Democratic Society, and there were other groups that were against the Vietnam War that were just became so strong and became such a huge part of society that they pushed the music to uh, catch up with them, usually, and that's the way it always worked, the civil rights movement, the same way. They always said they had to push musicians, and it's them doing their work on the streets that the musicians tried to catch up and, and catch on with, with that. Now, not that, you know, they weren't, like people like John Lennon didn't say, well, we're against the war, but to actually get out there with all this, you know, strong anti-war message in their songs, it was usually them catching up to the movement, not them leading the movement. But when it came right. to promoting the drugs, that, that was done in a in pretty major way. You know, in terms of having the stuff on the the album covers and the songs and all that, and that was promoted more than the the activist songs. You know, in a major way, the the drugs was always promoted war, and it was done by the assets of U.S. intelligence. Uh, so I have a whole section or two on the media in my book, um, but also in the film a bit, showing how um, the oligarchs basically uh, own most of the media and uh, you know things about. Of course, the Senate Church Committee found that well over 400 members of the media lived dual lives in the work for the CIA, and those included virtually every head of every major uh, media corporation. But if if the end game is to manipulate and control, let's say, the anti-war movement, and you have artists that want to sing protest songs, why wouldn't they cut it off? Uh, why wouldn't the recording label cut it off and, and say, like, say the producers, no, we're not including that song on the album? They why would they allow that stuff to get through? I argue that they, they, they censor loads of activist songs and messages. The ones that get through are just the milder ones, and loads of activist bands never got known. Um, you know, and that happens to the day. I mean, you know, even Rage Against the Machine being... Uh, not led to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they're just one of the top bands of all time, but it's just in general, I mean, you hear that about rap. I mean, you know, for example, with rap labels um, and rap music, they uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy says they constantly promote 
the most negative rap and, and really suppress and don't give publicity to the most activist rap. And uh, that's just the way it's, it's been. And the stuff that does get out is the stuff that barely ekes out despite all the uh, other activist bands not getting promoted and all the activist songs that were written that don't get out there. And so, you know, you look at John Lennon's more activist uh, time of his life, that stuff didn't get promoted anywhere near as much as his more, you know, his drug songs with the Beatles. When we come back in the second hour, we'll get into the specific targeting of certain musicians, uh, I guess, who went off script, who could no longer be controlled uh, by their by management and so forth. Uh, just in the couple of minutes that uh, remain or a minute here before we go into the break at the top of the hour, the, the music for your documentary was uh, uh, composed by Tupac's half-brother, was it not? Yeah, Mopreem Shakur. And uh, he's got a great rap song in the, in the uh, documentary, which I'm really happy about. And um, Electrical Circus uh, is a Columbus, Ohio band that did, did some great music throughout the film also, as well as they, another rapper named Trey D and Collective Flow. Did they compose that specifically for the documentary? No, they had already composed that music, but it just fit very well with the documentary. And but they, you got, uh, obviously, you got permission to use yeah, it. Yeah, so. rights for it, yeah, sure. And and uh, did Tupac uh, Tupac's uh, stepbrother watch the film? And had he read the book prior to giving you permission to use the music? Yeah, he read the book, and um, and then he you know he's gotten the film since it's finally gotten produced. It just came out, of course, just a few days ago. Fantastic. All right. Well, when we come back, let's get into uh, the the targeting of specific musicians like Brian Jones. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, John Lennon, uh, and, much, and much, much more. Uh, John Potash is with us, and uh, the documentary is Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's War on Musicians and Activists. And um, we've got about a minute here, I guess. Uh, once again, just tell us quickly how we can see the documentary. Sure. It's, um, you could buy it either at Amazon or iTunes or... Uh, Barnes and Noble or Best Buy or Walmart or Target um, or you can rent it from Vudu or Vimeo um, or uh, Microsoft Xbox or Google Play or YouTube rent of movies and places like that and uh, you can find these places easily at drugsandweapons.com Excellent. Okay, John, Thanks, stay sir. with us. Back for hour two in a moment. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flags, flagship station AM 740 and 96.7 FM, 
Zoomer Radio right here in Toronto. Hi to everyone checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey to each one of you who take The Conspiracy Show with you wherever you go on your mobile device via the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps. And of course, how do uh, to those of you listening and watching uh, via the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. We're at uh, 14,608 subscribers. Uh, so if you haven't already, hit that red sub button. Be sure to tell a friend to subscribe. Hello to everyone in the YouTube live chat as well. However, and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. John Potash is with us for the duration. His book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, Originally released in 2015, is now a feature-length documentary film, and uh, John is here telling us how he believes the CIA has declared war against rock, uh, against musicians and activists. Uh, John, in in hour one, you were telling us uh, the the difference uh, with how uh, the controllers of, of artists were handled in Britain versus the United States. Just sort of clarify and, and compare and contrast the two. Well, it appears that um, in the United States there was a bit more control over the music industry and a bit more uh, control over the artists and manipulation of the artists. Um, MKUltra was a vastly bigger project than uh, what was happening in England, but it was pretty big in England too, but it was with the Tavistock Institute. And um, and Marshall McLuhan, I think you know, uh, talks about that with John Lennon. But I don't get into that as much with my book. Um, but I, you know, maybe in a future film, I'll get more into that. But I think you did great work with you know what you showed your film about John Lennon regarding that, Richard. But um, in in England, the John Lennon and uh, you know Mick Jagger and Brian Jones uh, were a little more independent than a lot of the uh, top musicians in the United States. Um, you know, I think people surrounded uh, Bob Dylan and got him. You know, they were he was doing lots of drugs, and I think he, he became less independent, became more brain-addled by all the drugs he was doing. And uh, some people think that his motorcycle accidents, right after his two biggest um, you know albums, uh, bringing it all back home, or I think it was, or um, I forget the other one now, uh, but you know, uh, Highway 61 revisited and all, um, really messed him up. And he was doing lots of painkillers, and and then became a heroin act. But but um, most of the musicians in the United States uh, appear to have been more manufactured, manipulated, and you know, they reached the top. Whereas the Stones were a little less manipulated, and so were the Beatles, even though they were manipulated. I think John Lennon said he was anti-war from the start. Um, Brian Jones and Mick Jagger were anti-war from the start, and uh, said they started attending rallies. But um, you know, of course, they they were all targeted. Now, Lenin appeared to when uh, you know he met Marshall McLuhan, as you pointed out in Canada, around '68 or '69. He was really clued into how he was being manipulated, and became much more outspoken in his uh, anti-war activism, and uh, also his civil rights activism in support of the Black Panthers around 1970 or so. You know, inviting uh, Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panthers, nationally when uh, talk show that he was allowed to like kind of co-host for a week, so um, so he really broke out some of some of that manipulation. And uh, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, a lot of their work, you know, was contained. And when he broke out of the manipulation, he 
his work wasn't didn't seem to be as promoted as big as when he was you know uh, a little more controlled with the Beatles and all. But um, you know, so that's just some of the the way it worked seemed to work. Now let's start. Let's talk about uh, Brian Jones, uh, who supposedly drowned in his swimming pool. Yeah. Uh, in July of 1969. Now, he had been kicked out of the, the Rolling Stones several weeks prior. Uh, Keith and, and Mick uh, traveled down to his uh, estate and uh, to let him know he was out of the band. Here's the founder of the Rolling Stones being uh, being fired from his own group, really. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, he shows up dead two weeks later. Now, he had been he'd been let go because, by all accounts, he simply... He couldn't function in the studio anymore. He, he, um, he liked to drink and he liked to, to pop pills by all accounts. So, yeah. do you? But but you argue that Brian Jones was targeted for assassination. Why? Yeah, he was really the founder of the Rolling Stones. He was the most talented musician in the Rolling Stones by all accounts, and um, and so yeah, he was separated from the Stones through legal charges, the same way they got uh, Mick Jagger and. Keith Richards under the thumb legally that I argue they did the same thing to Brian Jones and so they, they had to separate temporarily because they wouldn't give Brian Jones a visa to come to the United States when the Rolling Stones were doing their United States tour in 1969. Now, um, A.E. Hotchner wrote the oral history of the Rolling Stones with his book Blown Away. As I said, that was Hemingway's editor and is a great writer and so Hotchner says and uh, is backed up by many much evidence that Jones sobered up. He he was very anti-war and very activist. He called his friends Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon and said, "In 1969, you want to form a new group?" And they tentatively said, "Yes, you know, we'd like to form a group with you." And so that would have been an incredible activist supergroup because all three of them were were into activism at that time: anti-war activism, civil rights activism. And all, and so uh, it was just after that that he got the, the tentative agreements from Hendrix and John Lennon to form the supergroup that he is drowned in his own swimming pool. And you know they say he he accidentally drowned, but uh, Hotchner uh, quotes eyewitnesses who said, you know, um, we we came back from getting something in you know going from the town and came back to his house, and there was all of a sudden a party there when there wasn't supposed to be a party there at his house, and uh, there was guards, not people not letting us in the you know, house, and we had to go around the back, and uh, we spied from the woods, you know, uh, someone getting drowned in, in the swimming pool by a few men, and somebody quickly, you know, comes out of the bushes where we were and says, you better get out of here um, or, or you'll be next, and identifies uh, this guy by name. He was a member of the Guinness uh, Beer family, actually. I forget his uh, name off the top of my head, but and so he quotes him, uh, you know, witnessing Jones being drowned by a few men, and uh, and so actually in the film um, I had gotten footage, and uh, sorry that this was a cut at the last minute. I had to cut out this uh, Brian Jones section of it, but um, hopefully there's going to be a director's cut down the road where I can get it back in, uh, where I have the Rolling Stones tour manager saying one film in a documentary that um, one of the guys who actually did, you know, drowned Brian Jones said on his deathbed, you know, that he had helped kill Brian Jones. And so, um, yeah, he was murdered. And um, and the fact that it was so covered up, it's just yet one more sign that, yes, this was an intelligence operation. 
Well, there was a theory that uh, there were uh, – he was always arguing with um, the uh, the tradespeople. He had tradespeople at his house constantly renovating this sprawling estate that was yeah. once owned by the uh, uh, the author of uh, the Winnie the Pooh. Was it A.A. Yeah. Milne, the A.A. Milne estate? The best account is that he couldn't get rid of them. These were people that he was trying to get rid of, and they would not leave his estate, and he couldn't get rid of them. And yes, you know, the best evidence is that they, he couldn't get rid of them because they were hired to set things up for his murder. Do you um, think that, that, that this was also um, a warning shot and a message being sent to Mick Jagger? Did he, was, oh, yes. he aware, was he aware of it? Yes, I definitely think it was a warning shot. I mean, Keith Richards said um, it, was like, uh, it was like JFK's assassination. You just couldn't get to the bottom of it. And he says... Brian Jones was an excellent swimmer. He's seen him swim in waves up to here, you know, uh, like in terrible ocean, you know, weather. He, he could swim anywhere. He was an incredible swimmer. And so it was definitely a warning because, um, you know, there was an attempt. To, there was uh, death threats against Mick Jagger. Um, there was, uh, I argue that the Audemont scene, when I, you know, I, I, you know just examined it incredibly closely, uh, it was a murder attempt. A guy actually... Uh, you know, stepped up on that stage with a gun in his hand, and that's on footage. Um, and as, as messed up as, as those Hell's Angels were, because they were incredibly messed up and they did horrible things, uh, one of the guys was messed up and didn't realize he wasn't supposed to stop that murder attempt, but he did. He stopped that murder attempt, killed the guy who, who stepped up on the stage with a gun in his hand, and, um, and then he was uh, later killed uh, himself. But, um, yeah, that, that was, you know, there was uh, death threats from other people. I mean, um, death threats from the head of the Oakland uh, Hells Angels, who uh, it was documented. You know, someone's actually said in court that we contracted the Hells Angels. This was a uh, ATF agent, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agent. So we contracted um, the head of the, the Oakland Hells Angels, Sonny Barger, to a murder Eldridge Cleaver and Cesar Chavez, the head of the... Uh, farm workers movement, the migrant farm workers movement. And so, you know, it just shows that these guys were, were part of, of operations like that, you know, with, to put some distance between the intelligence community and the actual assassinations. Now, Jimi Hendrix, an American artist, but he dies in England. In fact, he had to go to England uh, in order to uh, really become famous. He wasn't... Yeah. You know, he was hanging out in Greenwich Village. He wasn't really getting it done. But then he was discovered by, uh, I, b I believe, one of the uh, – Chaz Chandler from The Animals. Right. Uh, he took him over to England. They hooked up with, I think it was Kit Lambert, who was uh, the Who's mm -hmm. manager and uh, or, or producer. And uh, he really found his initial success in England. And, of course, that's where he died uh, in, in, in 1970. Now – yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely part of the Amer you know, American racism that couldn't have him, you know, you know, be so famous here in the United States. But once he gets to England, he's recognized as I think I argue there's a bit less racism because of the history of, of England, and so he becomes a superstar incredibly quickly in England. And so Chaz Chandler couldn't even handle all the uh, fame and touring that you know of all the people that wanted to book him, and uh, in, into his life becomes Mike Jeffrey. And Mike Jeffrey is, uh, he says he's former MI6, and, you know, he worked for, you know, the top biographies of Jimi Hendrix shows that Mike Jeffries had worked for uh, military intelligence in Britain. 
And MI6 is the British version of the CIA. So Mike Jeffries uh, showed all the evidence that he never really left the, C- the uh, MI6, that he continued to work undercover for MI6, and uh, proceeded to manipulate uh, Hendrix's career in a huge way. Now, you know, Hendrix was a superstar. He was incredibly talented. He was, you know, obviously a musical genius. And um, so he pushes drugs on him like crazy. And so Hendrix started doing more and more drugs. But at the same time, uh, there was a point where he just said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm leaving acid out. I'm not trying any other drugs. He only, he might have tried heroin, according to the top biographer, biographers like Cesar and Glebic, he tried heroin once, he tried maybe cocaine once, didn't touch it again, didn't like it. And um, in 1968, he wasn't very, he wasn't that political, but when, in 1968, when the, when uh, MLK was assassinated, he was really upset and he got, started getting very political and he started dedicating albums to the Black Panthers. He talked about them in interviews and uh, started, you know, developing anti, anti-war projects and his his wife, his fiance Monica Danneman, documents that in her book, and says how uh, Mike Jeffrey um, basically dosed his drink. I mean, yeah, Hendrix thought that Jeffrey dosed his drink with uh, loads of acid right before a um, uh, anti-war concert he was doing, and messed up his guitar playing because he hadn't done acid in a while. He had given up acid for a long time at that point and um, another time planted drugs on him in an airport and got him in legal trouble with that and then that was here in toronto that was here in toronto exactly yeah and and he got off i mean he would have done a long stretch probably 20 years but he got off they didn't find any drug uh, um was it they didn't have any drug paraphernalia uh, on him but they found the drugs, but no drug paraphernalia. So Mike Jeffrey supposedly planted that. Yes, Jeffrey uh, Hendrix thought that Jeffrey planted that on to control him more. And uh, then he actually had mafia kidnap him, and Jeffrey uh, pretended to have bigger mafia get him out 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 from after several days being kidnapped, just because Hendrix couldn't stand Jeffrey anymore and was trying to get rid of him, was trying to fire him, but but really couldn't get out of. The contract, and uh, finally, when when Hendrix fires Mike Jeffrey, within 48 hours, uh, Hendrix is dead. And the um, you know he, he Jeffrey actually ended up admitting to a roadie who just came out with the book within the last five or ten years, saying that when Jeffrey was drunk, he admitted he had Hendrix killed. And another producer uh, actually said that when he was drunk, he also admitted to him that he had Hendrix killed. And so who can do that, have someone killed within 48 hours of being fired? You, you have some hit team just come in and kill Hendrix? It's just obviously, you know, uh, that, that loads more evidence show that Jeffrey was working for British intelligence in collaboration with the FBI that had him under daily surveillance. Um, and so, you know, they, they collaborated to kill Hendrix because Hendrix was getting very political and it was, was threatening to both promote sobriety because he was sobering up and, and left-wing politism, anti, you know, anti-war uh, politics and, and uh, anti-war activism. Well, the, the other man. theory is, though, that, that because Mike Jeffrey was owing the mob a lot of money because Hendrix and Jeffrey together had bought uh, electric... Um, uh, Electric Lady Studios in New York had to be refurbished. They owed the mob a lot of money. Now all of a sudden, Hendrix is threatening to fire Mike Jeffrey. Jeffrey's going to be ho- left holding the bag with all this debt owed to the mob. 
And so by staging Hendrick's death, making it look like it was accidental, an accidental, well, he supposedly asphyxiated on his own vomit after taking barbiturates, but this huge um, insurance settlement basically allowed Jeffrey to pay off his huge debt to the mob. You don't want to be owing money to the mob. I mean, yeah, I isn't it possible theory. that that's the you. motive? I hear and, you, that's a theory, but when you look at so many of these deaths, um, look at Kurt Cobain's death that was made to look like a suicide, and you look at a number of these artists and the way they died, it's just, you know, there's always, uh, they always have a cover-up, you know, theory, a cover-up reason, and uh, yet when you look at, at his life and all the evidence that he was uh, doing, all the things that, that intelligence operatives do with offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands, um, you know, he could speak Russian fluently. He, he was um, obviously inserted, you know, and the things he did to Hendrix with the uh, setting him up with cocaine, the dosing him with acid to not do and trying to get him not to do any um, activist, you know, concerts ever. Um, the way he, he uh, would book them one night in the East Coast and the next night on the West Coast, back and forth in the East Coast again to really mess him up. He was obviously trying to mess up Hendrix and his career and manipulate him and control him. In, uh, even though you know, he's, he, uh, he booked a lot of his concerts, he, was really, he set him up with the monkeys. He was touring with the monkeys. It's just all kinds of things that were just absurd that had nothing to do with mafia, nothing to do with anything else but... Uh, messing up Hendrix and controlling him and stopping him from activism and things like that. Almost a form of mind control, just the way that he drove him to the point of exhaustion. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, yeah. if you look at his tour schedule, there was no rhyme or reason. He would be, as you say, hip-hopping back and forth, crisscrossing the United States instead of going up and down one coast. Right. And then, you know, taking some time off, he was constantly going back and forth. Yeah. Um, and then when he when he dies, we have the uh, the attending physician at the hospital where he was taken, reporting all of this wine in Hendrix's hair, in his clothes. Yeah. It was in his lungs, uh, but it wasn't in his stomach, as if he had been waterboarded with red wine. Right. Right. And there's so many discrepancies about the you know the reason for his death, the time of his death. And uh, Jeffries um, warned his you know, Monica Dam, and um, first she, he stole her script about a book about Hendrix. Um, you know, her first copy of her book was, was out. With, you know, she had finished it within a few years of Hendrix's death, with reporting all of the uh, official discrepancies that, that went on, and, and, and all these different ways there were problems with all the, you know, uh, with the kind of uh, investigation of Hendrix's death. On the official level, and uh, they basically said that that he there's no reason you have the amount of uh, kind of medication he had in the system for sleeping pills shouldn't have killed him. So they don't know why exactly he died, and so um, you know according to the official coroner's report. So yeah, there's a lot of foul play, a whole lot of foul play just in you know officially just beyond Mike Jeffrey. And so and and uh, Monica Daneman, uh, who was with him at the time, well, she skipped out at, at, at one point. She said she went out for cigarettes, and when she came back, he was dead. Uh, so how, did they get hurrying on this as well? Well, I don't know, and there's a lot of questions about that, a lot of different theories about that. All I can say is that when she came out with her book finally, years later, 
after she was war- you got death threats from Jeffries about coming out the book after he, you know apparently she reported they stole her manuscript. You know he he ends up vanishing supposedly in a plane crash, but um, all they apparently identified him in the plane crash was by jewelry they found of his. Uh, so right. they think they think he was just you know like given a new cover and sent away to another land, another another country. But her she comes out with her book finally, and and her book is is an excellent book in terms of talking about all the activism of Jimi Hendrix in the last years of his life, um, and all the things Jeffrey did uh, to sabotage him and his work um, in the last years of his life. But um, and all these things that, that you know that Jeffrey oh. threatened. But um, she died. John, I got their book. Uh, you gotta give uh, a break. I understand. Okay. Yeah, we'll take a time out and sure. come back with John Potish. Drugs as weapons against us, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at four one six. 360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with uh, John Potish. Uh, let's go to the phones. And Richard is joining us. Richard, where are you calling from? I'm from Mississauga. Hey, Richard. I, um, John, I have, uh, good evening. I have uh, two, two um, situations that I wanted to speak to you about that, that sort of uh, work around the CIA and the theme of uh, influential fathers. I've always found it quite comical that... Um, the CIA, um, one of the directors of what we would call the world's police force, his son was in a band called The Police, that being Stuart Copeland yes, yes. and Miles Copeland. Right. And, I, and I often wondered if he ever used the band as a platform to uh, ship things around the world or have uh, roadies as operatives or things like that. And the Great other question. One, the other one that I considered... Uh, given how much CIA activity and drugs were involved in the Golden Triangle, uh, it never really got much uh, or, or as much as I would have thought in terms of exposure in that Jim Morrison's father was uh, an influential admiral in the Gulf of Tonkin and the Vietnam, Vietnam Naval Offensive. Yes. Yeah, I talk about both those things in my book. Um so about the police, yeah, you know, Sting, well, I, I argue, was manipulated uh, by Stuart Copeland. Um, and, you know, Miles Copeland Sr. was a CIA architect, and he was, you know, majorly involved in their cultural operations. And I argue that his son, Miles Copeland uh, III, I think it was, or Jr., whatever it was, it was you know, Miles Sr.'s son, um, he he owned loads of record labels and like record management companies that just managed you know a lot of bands, including bands I really like. Um, but I argue that he tried to manipulate a lot of those bands through that management company. And Stuart Copeland uh, made the police very big, very fast with his intelligence connections. Um, but him and uh, Sting got into arguments over lyrics because Sting wanted to write his own lyrics and Stuart wanted to control everything. 
And so there, you know, I didn't hear about any, you know, what they, you know, anything they did nefariously. But I do argue that Stuart Copeland and uh, Miles Copeland, his brother, um, definitely manipulated a lot of things in the music industry themselves. But uh, in terms of the other thing you brought up um, around, uh, I'm sorry, that was the Gulf of Tulsa. Jim Morrison's father, Jim Morrison's the father. Admiral. I got a picture of Jim Morrison just before they turned him into this rock star with his father in the in a boat. And yes, his father, uh, Matt, you know, basically led the boat that caused the Gulf of Tonkin incident that started the Vietnam War. And uh, everyone knows that was a set-up incident. It was a fake incident just to get into the Vietnam War. But, um, you know, uh, I have a section on that argues that he was part of this Laurel Canyon scene that Dave McGowan did a very good book about called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon that uh, was basically a, basically a manufactured scene where you took you got a lot of people connected to the top military, like Jim Morrison and, and David Crosby and others, that became instant rock stars, top of the charts instantly, uh, without a whole lot of uh, musical talent, believe it or not. But now I think Jim Morrison then rebelled from that kind of manufactured instant rock star, you know, rock stardom place that they put him in and started trying to, you know, blow the whistle a little bit, do his own thing a bit, and so he was done away with because of that. Now, I didn't get a whole lot into him besides just his start, but I think that probably was the case, like these other... Example, but but I he have. was estranged. I mean, I talked to um, uh, his brother-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, his former brother-in-law, Jim's former brother-in-law, Alan Graham, and and I mean, Jim was estranged from his parents. He said, "My family, they're all dead." In one famous interview, wow. uh, so I, I mean, I'm, I don't know how, if there was no real connection between him and his father, how he would have, I guess, been used or manipulated by him. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's hard to know what the truth is because a lot of people might say, oh, I have nothing to do with my parents and my family, and uh, yet that's really what's going on, that they, they were put in place and set up to, to be these instant stars. But, again, I don't cover Jim Morrison in my book. I just touch on him very briefly about his his father. Um, I really just talk, I focus on uh, John Lennon and, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain, Tupac Shakur and the Stones and all that. Right. Um, do you talk about Janis Joplin at all? Yes. Um, so Janis Joplin uh, had a, you know, a guy who professed to being, in a, you know, working for the FBI enter her life uh, when she was early on, when she was like known just to be incredibly talented in the San Francisco music scene, but it was no, it was really not known outside the San Francisco music scene, and uh, and get her hooked on amphetamines at a young age, and he he uh, you know uh, proposed to her for marriage, they were engaged to get married, and then she found out that he had a wife and family somewhere else, and if you look at his history, his history shows that he had some kind of high-level intelligence connections from the different things he was doing. And um, so, uh, you know, that was just one way of the many ways I argue that she was manipulated to get into a lot number of drugs. But then as she was sobering up and trying to get get off of heroin um, and going back and forth between sobriety and slipping up, um, she had uh, agreed to do these major anti-war concerts um, at uh, Philadelphia's uh, stadium and New York's Shea Stadium. And uh, just before doing these concerts, she announced them on the uh, Dick Cavett show. Um, she ended up getting heroin that, that killed her. 
And um, her sister says, you know, there's lots of rumors that the CIA was behind it, but um, it's just some of the manipulations of her life and her early death when she was getting trying to sober up and get more into activism. Now, you don't cover Elvis, as far as I know, but uh, I had uh, author I Steve Ubaney. Oh, I did my book, yeah. actually, but not, not in the film. Uh, I couldn't, you know, just not enough time in the film. But in the book, I mean, this Colonel Tom Parker enters his life when he's 21 years old, gets him using speed and uh, downers uh, constantly, and then um, and then gets him into the Viet- you know drafted in the Vietnam in the war. I'm sorry, in the Korean War, and in '58 he's sent over to Germany, which is the has the height of MKUltra experiments and activity. And um, and they said, and you know, John Lennon said that uh, people asked him about what they thought about Elvis's death, and he said to me, Elvis died when he uh, entered the Vietnam War in fifty. I mean, sorry, the Korean War in fifty-eight. After that, he was just like the Walking Dead, because uh, Tom Parker completely controlled him thereafter and had surrounded him with people they called the Memphis Mafia. They completely, you know, manipulated him. He wouldn't let him uh, uh, do a live show for about ten years. Uh, wouldn't you know? Had them all do only canned movies. He, he had, they wouldn't let him do a Star Is Born or West Side Story and all these other movie offers he got. And so he was controlled. And do you think again that uh, do you think Parker was a CIA asset? Because I mean, he does have a shady past. He apparently he yeah. killed a man in the Netherlands, uh, came into the United States illegally, somehow got into the army and uh, assumed. I mean, he certainly wasn't named Colonel Tom Parker. He wasn't a colonel. He took the name. Well, he so was as a, a very sh- he was a colonel in the uh, reserves, but in ah. the reserves, uh, that's where they they get lots of special forces, what they call the Green Berets, and they you know they, they use the reserves and the Green Berets for the assassination of Martin Luther King. So lots of uh, operations, um, you know, intelligence operations come out. You know, they use the people in the reserves for those operations, and he was a high level colonel in the reserves, Army reserves. So, um, you know, it's very interconnected with U.S. intelligence, and so I definitely believe, you know, they had an FBI on Elvis in as early as 1956. You know, he was 21 or 22 years old. So, yes, they, they definitely were very concerned about Elvis controlling people's hearts and minds, and that's what that's about. That's what the CIA hopes to do. They know they can't control people physically because, you know, the oligarchs are so outnumbered that they'll, you know, less than 1% and more than 99%. But they have to control our hearts and minds, and their intelligence documents say, and I quote them, I show them in my film and book, that you know, to make people think they're acting in their own interest when they're really acting in the interests of the oligarchs. But then why build him up? I mean, they created him. I mean, yes, he was a huge talent, but uh, the machine got behind Elvis. What, what they turned him into... He was already the, like a, a superstar at 21 years old. He was... You know, he was, like, loved all over the country at such an early age. Um, he was, like, the first huge rock star. And uh, so it's once he was already showing this huge, you know, fame around the country, then they, they inserted this uh, Colonel Tom Parker to then manipulate that fame and control that fame. So they didn't, they, you know, they didn't really, um, they controlled his, his trajectory from there uh, therein. And they wouldn't let him do a live show for 10 years. That's what, you know, Parker wouldn't let him do a live show for 10 years. They send him, in the height of his career, they send him over to Germany for two years, you know, uh, 50, you know in 1958. So um, it's, he was massively controlled. He, he was already a star, and then they inserted someone in, and that's, that was their pattern. 
these guys were already incredible, you know, musicians or, or actors or singers, and they're, you know, they're, someone's inserted their life to control them. The same thing happened with Kurt Cobain. Nevermind was already rising up the charts, and it, everyone could tell it was in the underground before Nevermind. You know, a lot of us who, who were into underground, you know, this alternative scene, the punk scene and all that, knew of, of you know, Nirvana. We knew about Bleach. We, you know, it was considered, you know, this great new band with this, you know, interesting new sound. And that wasn't a great album, but it was it was a very unique and interesting album. And we knew, you know, everyone knew that Nirvana was a very talented band. But once Nevermind came out, it was, you know, everyone knew they were going to be superstars because it was rising up the charts incredibly fast. And so in, into his life comes Courtney Love. And Courtney Love uh, is... is Supposedly dating Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins that that day, that night when she met him, and instantly leaves him and hooks on to Cobain and a show that Courtney Love's whole life was, uh, you know, bizarre. She was a drug addict and prostitute from a very early age. I show that uh, in the film in a huge way, but in my book I go into much more detail of, of the. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll pick up on uh, we'll pick up on the. The, the exploits of Courtney and uh, Kurt when we come back. John Potash, my guest. We- uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. John Potash is with us. Drugs as weapons against us. The CIA's war against rock. Musicians, activists. We're focusing really uh, here on uh, on the musicians. We were talking about Courtney Love and uh, uh, Kurt Cobain before the break, John. And I don't know. I um, I, I I certainly think that that Courtney is um, a manipulative opportunist. Uh, but to to kill the father of her child and then stage it as a suicide yeah, at, what, at the right. behest of the CIA? That's what I argue, yes. Now, now in my, um, in my book, I go into a lot more detail that I can't, I uh, didn't have time to go into in my film, that uh, evidence that she had, um, you know, uh, suffered from dissociative identity disorder because she said she wrote a letter to her biological father when he, he, he lost custody of her when she was about five, five or six years old because uh, her grandparents were the Reese's who had uh, huge stock in uranium mines and uh, Bosch and Lum, you know, uh, contact lens company and all that. And they were extremely rich and paid off his lawyer to have him lose custody of, of her. But then she uh, wrote him a letter from juvenile uh, detention facility saying, please get me out of here, and um, I've been abused all my life. My, my uh, counselors were having sex with me, and she was getting counseling from, by different accounts, between age two and four years old is when she started counseling, which is absurd. 
But um, her, her own mother's uh, memoir talks about, you know, sending her to counseling at about three years old or four years old. Another memoir says she started to, whatever it was, it's incredibly early age, which doesn't make sense. You don't get counseling at a four, you don't give counseling to a four-year-old. But anyway, and she was getting drugs, medications, and listed the psychohypnotic medications that the doctors were giving to her, the psychiatrists, and those were MKUltra psychohypnotic drugs. And she said that all my, my psychiatrists were also having sex with me as a kid. And that, that is the recipe for developing dissociative disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called uh, split personality. So there's the argument for that, but all I know is by age 13, when uh, her father did get her out of the juvenile detention facility, he didn't realize that she had turned into a monster. She was using heroin and other drugs regularly, leaving uh, syringes in his home. He couldn't take it anymore. He had to kick her out. He, you know, he tried to get her to stop using the drugs. He couldn't. Um, but he also said she was prostituting herself regularly, and he has all kinds of evidence of that. But uh, in her, in the memoirs about, I mean, sorry, in the biographies about her, um, she admits stripping for the Japanese mafia, and then she, then for the Taiwanese mafia. It's incredible what she was doing at between ages of 14. And 16 years old, she, you know, her, uh, these biographies document her stripping. And also, um, she admits prostituting, you know, in, in Asia. So she was already a heroin addict and prostitute. And by 17 years old, uh, she goes and visits her father, Hank Harrison, who I interviewed for two hours. And, and, um, and he's in Dublin doing research for a book. And she visits him. And he, incidentally, not realizing it, introduces her to a new friend who would befriend some guy who befriended him out there named Steve O'Leary, who on Steve O'Leary's deathbed ended up admitting when he died in 2005 that he had been working for the CIA all that time. And him and his brother, Kevin O'Leary, proceeded to take Courtney Love um, to uh, London when Courtney Love was carrying a thousand hits of acid, and Courtney Love spreads the acid all over the music scene there to all the top musicians around London. And then she does the same thing at 17, 18 years old, 19 years old, goes to each music scene, Portland, Los Angeles, spreads drugs like candy, according to all of her biographies, you know, several biographies on her uh, tell of this. And um, so that's what she did. Then she got married to a guy named James, I think it was named James Moreland, his name was, um, who says that uh, she bragged to him about sleeping with armies, army generals in Alaska who who told her how wars were, were good for the United States, and he thought he was marrying some punk feminist, and he realized he was marrying some, like, right-wing Phil Diller, and she would have uh, people come and beat him up if he didn't do everything she said, and he ended up, you know, finally getting away from her and divorcing her, um, scared for his life. And so then she, of course, you know, inserts herself into Cobain's life, manipulates him, gets him using heroin daily for the first time in his life, and so he inadvertently promotes heroin, and you know you run into the same pattern of you got these people manipulating some of these musicians. To then they, they ends up promoting the drugs, and then when they start sobering up and getting more into the activism, which is what happened with with Kurt, because a blood test um, a month before he died, a blood test from his coma in Rome showed that he had no illicit substances in his system except for the rohypnol, the roofies that she had as her own sleep medication. And so he almost died in that incident when she obviously gave him roofies and he couldn't remember everything that happened because he was roofied. But um, so, um, you know, it was actually rohypnol's legal in, in England as a sleep medication, and that's where she got it when her band was over there. 
and so a month later, you know, he you know they say he died of uh, suicide, but um, the top, you know, president of the American Pathology Association, Cyril Weck, says no, it was a stage suicide, it was a murder made to look like a suicide, and um, so I have him on film saying that, and uh, have much more of the evidence of why that all occurred and how that all occurred and how she helped more powerful forces do you know make that happen and uh including a guy who says she offered him fifty thousand dollars to to you know shoot to blow her old man's head off and how he died a few days later after the filming of him saying that holden hoke right he uh, he admitted to it um there's a clip of him on youtube and then several weeks after him saying that uh courtney had offered him money he's found dead on a railroad track yeah, several days actually, and so, several days, yeah, right? And that was for uh, Nick Broomfield's film, Kurt and Courtney. And so, yeah, it's uh, there's a whole lot of evidence around that for sure. And you know, of course, a lot of evidence around Tupac Shakur's murder and uh, the way U.S. intelligence set that up. But I just want to also include, you know, say that you know a lot of this was done. I have a lot of sections in the film that were show how uh, and you know Students for Democratic Society leaders were dosed with acid and then convinced to keep using it and promote it and then some of them actually died um, in various ways um, but Black Panthers in particular uh, undercover agents got Huey Newton the founder of the National Black Panthers using cocaine and then um, US intelligence appeared to be behind his murder and the Shakur was uh, manipulated by a U.S. intelligence agent. I showed the evidence for um, to use cocaine, and she was really taken out of her activism for years before she sobered up and got back into it. Um, but, of course, she was uh, Tupac's mother, and then Tupac was born into Black Panther activism from day one. And, and Yes. People, people Listen, i got to take a... Oh, no problem. I've got to take a time out here, uh, John. When we come back, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Tupac. John Potish, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Potish is with us in a uh, brand new documentary based on his 2015 book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, now available. Uh, once again, John, uh, tell people how they can uh, find your documentary and rent or buy it. Yeah, so you can go to drugsasweapons.com to find out all the outlets for renting and buying, but some of them are, you can buy it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Best Buy or rent it through places like Voodoo or iTunes or Vimeo and places like that. All right. We were talking about Tupac. Uh, died in, uh, well, it's been 20, coming up on 20, 23 years. Right. Hard to believe. In Las Vegas, uh, gunned down by all accounts by a rival uh, gang member, uh, Orlando Anderson. Uh, how does the CIA figure in this? Yeah, so... Um you know, people, they tried to present the narrative that he was a rival gang member, but Tupac wasn't in the gang. Tupac was actually born into the Black Panther family, and uh, when he was about 17 years old, he headed a group that tried to replicate the Black Panthers called the New African Panthers. 
and that is a heavily hidden fact of his history. Um, but I talked to his business manager and his national lawyer, um, Watani Taihimba and Chokwe Lumumba, and got you know, documentation of that and uh, have him in the film talking about the New African Panthers on the radio at that time when he was 17 or 18 years old. And so then um, he left them only to um, try to present activism through his music, but um, still was involved in major activist projects such as the Black Panthers you know, his Black Panther extended family started, you know, calling, getting the Bloods and Crips gangs to call peace truces in Los Angeles right after, um, actually right before the, the L.A. riots and then majorly afterwards the L.A. riots, and then uh, started getting those peace truces and those turn, you know, those uh, changes to activism and stopping drug dealing going from the Los Angeles area throughout California, and then that spread nationwide. And that made, um, and Tupac was instrumental in calling bank, uh, gang peace truce picnics and getting that to happen. And uh, that was a major blow to the uh, drug dealers and launderers, the drug traffickers, such as, the, you know, of course, the CIA being the top drug trafficker. And um, it really took tons of their sales off the streets and uh, affected banks that were laundering uh, drug money in a huge way. And I show how that happened. And so um, what started as FBI uh, Latter-day COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program uh, targeting, counterintelligence program was the targeting that was found when the FBI documents were stolen from an FBI office in 1971. They found that the FBI had murderously targeted, you know, the Black Panthers and other and white activists too, but particularly the Black Panthers and, you know, Tupac's mother, uh, they, they targeted for murder at one time. But... Um, so then, you know, uh, whistleblowers, I show whistleblowers like M. Wesley Swearing in my film who talk about this and talk about how the FBI's counterintelligence program continued at least until the 1990s when Tupac was killed and uh, show all the evidence, including a top uh, police whistleblower named Russell Poole, who sadly died uh, when he was still giving evidence to the police about how he found his fellow police officers were at all levels of death row records and were drug trafficking through death row records and had set up Tupac's murder, sadly enough. So was Suge Knight involved? Well, Suge Knight, I show the evidence that he was involved. He was a very low man on the totem pole. Um, and that's why, you know, he could be in the car when the shots were coming, you know, in his direction. But there were 13 of them, of course, killed Tupac, but none of them directly uh, hit him. They say he was only grazed by either a flying fragment or glass and, you know, obviously wasn't seriously hurt at all. Um, so, but he, all the evidence shows that he purposely drove away from the hospital, the, the direction of the hospital, and he knew Vegas because he had, uh, played football there in college, and, uh, he also had a, uh, club there, club, you know, uh, 662, where they were heading for a benefit show that Tupac was doing. Um, so, you know, he was involved in a low-level low way, and the higher-level people were his, um, the lawyer, who was real, the real owner of Death Row Records, Dave Kenner. And then uh, his head of security was a guy named Reggie Wright Jr. And Reggie Wright Sr. was the head of uh, uh, Compton's gang police unit. And um, so I showed that they were the higher level members of U.S. intelligence. But uh, there was FBI and ATF agents in the motorcade behind Tupac when he was killed. And the guy who worked who was working for the FBI at the time, he was also Tupac's bodyguard, who turned on the FBI show and tried to get him not to go to Vegas, said he had documents to prove that they had watched his uh, Tupac's murder and obviously we're part of the whole uh, murder of Tupac. When I look at musicians and artists today that have been signed to major labels, they seem so controlled. 
uh, and on script. Is it are they still being manipulated by the, the the CIA or do they just do they want success so much that they're just willing to do and say anything? Yeah, I, I, I can't say for sure. I just know that I can only give the examples, you know, that I found, you know, of uh, it's just continuing to happen into the 2000s with the Wu-Tang Clan and other musicians. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of control. There's a lot of manipulation. There's only they only allow certain bands to get high up um there's you know i i can't tell how much it's still going on but i imagine you know my examples are just 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 small examples of a a larger picture of how it all works but so much of the culture today i find just to be so toxic uh whether it's the music or uh, the movies coming out of hollywood uh how much of that is market driven and how much of that is sort of top down I, th- I think it's more top-down. Uh, I really do. I mean, there's just so much. Um, I mean, you know, uh, when I talked about the Laurel Canyon scene, there was uh, Lookout Mountain Studios. Uh, Dave McGowan had done research one. was cons- was the largest self-contained music- uh, movie studio in the world and had thousands of employees in this small Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles. And it was an Air Force movie studio that put out 19,000 classified movies and had top stars all sign confidentiality agreements to not say what they were involved in there. And I argue that a lot of the movies come out of studios like that and are controlled in that way, or propaganda movies in that way. What are you working on next, John? Now that the doc- I mean, I know you've got to put your feet up for a few minutes. You're entitled after putting this documentary to uh, to bed finally. But w- what's up next? Are you going to continue to to delve into this uh, this area? Well, I'm going to write. I'm writing, working on an activist novel. It's a novel that uh, covers some similar themes, but it's you know uh, supposedly fiction. But you know, of course, covers a whole lot of other stuff that I, I just um, you know want to make more entertaining. You know, that's on similar themes, though. Any chance that Drugs as Weapons Against Us will have any sort of theatrical release? Can we see any plans to put it up on a big screen, maybe in limited theaters? Well, sadly enough, my distributor didn't didn't go for that. And um, But it's been in some film festivals and some theaters and different places. And, uh, you know, I hope, uh, yes, that it does someday maybe get more of a theatrical release. I just don't know. I I still have to catch up with someone in Atlanta who said that they could show it in a theater down there. Um, I know it's actually being shown in L.A. for the Pan-African Film Festival. Uh, within the next week or two, it's being shown in London in the Fusion Festival uh, within the next two or three weeks. I know that. So it's playing in a few theaters here and there that way. But otherwise, um, I just don't know if it will be in theaters more further than that. One final time, give us the details on how we can watch Drugs as Weapons Against Us. So, thanks. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great talking to you. But uh, So you can go to drugsasweaponsmovie.com uh, or just drugsasweapons.com, either one, um, and uh, see the trailer for it, I meant to say, of course. But you can also uh, buy it at Amazon or iTunes or Barnes & Noble or Best Buy or Target or um, Walmart. Or you can rent it at, uh, I think you can also rent it at iTunes and um, Vudu and Vimeo and uh, Microsoft Xbox, Google Play, YouTube, Rent, etc. 
John, a great pleasure. Thanks for hanging out for the last two hours, and congratulations. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great talking to you again. Likewise, John Potish. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian and Ryan and Albert, and I'll be back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.